0: We're going to read responsibly just one question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism, then we'll pray, and then we'll turn into our scripture reading for this morning. As we've been going through the Lord's Prayer, we'll track along with the Catechism question and answer 126 deals with the fifth request of the Lord's Prayer, which is, forgive us our debts. So I'll read the question, you all can read the answer. What does the fifth request mean? Father, as we <clears throat> turn to your word now, which tells us of the great forgiveness which you have offered us in Christ, we pray that you would shine the light of this gospel upon our hearts, impress upon us the great weight of our sin and the greater weight of your glorious grace. And we pray that as we come to learn how it is that your son taught us to pray, that we would model our prayers after his own, and that we would be a people of prayer. And so we ask for this in the name of Jesus, amen. We'll begin with Luke 11, we'll read verses 1 to 4, and then we'll flip over to Matthew 6, verses 9 to 15, where we'll... To camp out, so Luke 11, verses 1 to 4, and then do flip over if you would to Matthew 6, verses 9 to 15. Again, looking at the fifth request in the Lord's Prayer to have our debts forgiven. Starting in Luke 11, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord. Teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. And then flipping back over to Matthew 6, starting in the ninth verse, reading through verse 15. Jesus said, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. There's a, a well-known book that's uh, been around for quite some time, The Pilgrim's Progress. And in The Pilgrim's Progress, the main character is named Christian. And it's an allegorical story, which means that Christian is, is meant to stand for kind of the, the common experience of all Christians through the ages, and the story begins with Christian living in the city of destruction. And as he lives in the city of destruction, he has this, this unbearable burden upon his back. And he wants to be rid of the burden, but he cannot be rid of the burden. No matter how hard he tries, no matter what he does, it, it cannot come off. And then one day, a man named Evangelist arrives in the city of destruction and tells Christian that there is a way to have his burden removed. And he points him along his way. And so Christian leaves the city of destruction. His, his family and his friends, they scorn him, they mock him, but he leaves anyways. And along the way that evangelist pointed him, finally he comes to a hill. And on the top of the hill there is a cross, and as he, as he goes up the hill and comes to the cross, his burden falls away. And he is free of it. And the, the burden, a Christian's burden, stands, as you may have guessed, for his sin and for his guilt. But as he comes to the cross, the sin and the guilt fall away. As he comes, of course, as we are meant to know, to Christ. And For the Christian, that is the way it is for us as well. As we come to Christ... The burden of sin and guilt is taken away. And it's taken away at the cross. But we have, we have oftentimes a mixed relationship with guilt. I think there are really four relationships that any given person can have with their guilt. And there's only one of those four relationships that we as followers of Christ should aspire to have. And the first of those relationships is that we feel guilt even though we shouldn't. And we feel guilt even though we shouldn't because we are in fact forgiven. We have we have prayed to ask the Lord for forgiveness, and we have prayed as Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts, and they have been forgiven. And we have a softened heart towards the gospel, and we desire to be free from our sin. But even still, we, we bear this load of sin, and it feels as though we cannot be rid of it. We're, we're sort of like Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh. Maybe you're familiar with Winning the Pooh. Eeyore is this, is, this, is this gloomy donkey, and everywhere he goes, it might be sunny everywhere around him, but this little cloud goes everywhere he goes. And some of us live like that. We have this, this cloud that hovers over us everywhere we go. We can hardly have a thought without thinking about the guilt which we bear for God. And we have these thoughts wrongly because as we have had our hearts softened To Christ, and as we have come to Christ, we are not guilty, even though we perceive ourselves to be guilty. And this perception of our guilt comes from a position of faithlessness. It comes from a position of knowing, perhaps, that God forgives sin, knowing that He forgives sin freely in Christ, but not really feeling that my sins are forgiven. We know all the right things. We know, what, we know what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the first two verses where he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We know the words, there is, no, there is therefore now no condemnation. And we believe those words, but we just don't believe them for ourselves. Because we know ourselves. And we know just how profound our sin is and how weighty it is. And so we may believe that others can have their sins forgiven, but we don't believe that our sin's forgiven. And this comes again from a position of faithlessness. We have talked about hindrances to prayer. And this is one of those hindrances to prayer it is a failure to receive the promise of God as applying not only to others but to myself as well. But there are others who feel guilty, and this is one of those second categories. There's others who feel guilty, and they should feel guilty. And you might think, well, that's not a very that's not a very Christian thing to say, but it's true. There are some who feel guilty and who should feel guilty. Now the problem is, those of you who feel guilty though you shouldn't are going to say that you're in the second category. And so you need to evaluate for yourself, where is my heart with the Lord? Because some people feel guilty because they're not right with the Lord and it's true that they're not right with the Lord. Some of us harbor sin. Maybe we confess some sins, but we harbor other sins and we are unwilling to be rid of them. We have this one sin, even if it's just one sin, we, we have this sin, and no matter what it is, we're not willing to confess it, we're not willing to deal with it, and we're certainly not willing to put it to death. We long to have this sin, we, we love this sin, and because we love it, we are guilty before God. Sins which are confessed, which are hated, those are forgiven. Sins which are loved kill us so some of us perhaps live in these perpetual sins, and we, we love these perpetual sins. So maybe we are, are living in a, a state of adultery, or we are addicted to pornography, or maybe we're looking for attention in all the wrong ways and from all the wrong people, or we are thieves, or we are drunkards, or we are swindlers, or we are idolaters. Maybe we have any of these sins, and we are just not ready to part with them then we are guilty. And if we feel that guilt, that's a good thing. That's our conscience driving us to see what this sin does to us. Paul says in Romans 2, verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And if this is you, and if you feel this weight of guilt, then it's time to go with Christian to the cross and to nail that sin to that cross and seek to put it to death, lest, as John Owen say, it put you to death. And some of us then fall into a third category, which is a very dangerous place to be. We don't feel guilt even though we are guilty. And this is a dangerous place to be because it means we have beaten our conscience into submission so much that we are unable to feel conviction. And even though we live in this sin, we do not even receive it as sin. And we live in it with no remorse and with no sense of repentance and with no desire to be rid of it whatsoever. We do not see the danger. We are are blind to the danger of the wrath of God which awaits. And for this person who has this kind of hard heart, disaster looms very near. And for this person, we can only pray that God will do whatever it is necessary to do to crack this heart, to crush it, to take it out and replace it with a heart of and sometimes for people like this we need to have sort of a shock to our system we need to be shocked into a state of reality and some people need to hear the comforting parts of the scriptures there is therefore now no condemnation and others need to need to hear the disturbing parts of the scriptures like what we read in revelation 21 verse 8 perhaps no passage equals this in disturbing us There, John reads and hears, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That should shock us and jolt us out of sin. It should help us to see our guilt and then, again, drive us to the cross. But where we want to be with regards to guilt is we want to not feel guilty because we are not guilty. Now I'm not saying that any of us are free from sin. That that of course would be an absurdity which does not fit with the scriptures whatsoever. I, I'm not saying that we're not sinners and that we shouldn't perceive ourselves to be sinners. We we recognize that we are sinners, don't we? We do. We recognize ourselves to be sinners, but there is a difference between a sinner who is defined by their sin and a sinner who is defined by Christ. And we desire, and we are, if we come to Christ, we are those who are defined by Christ. We are recipients of His grace, and we feel what Paul felt. Paul the Apostle said there is there is nothing good in my flesh in my flesh I desire what is wicked but in the spirit there is righteousness and there was this war inside of Paul Between the good and the bad. Between the righteousness and the unrighteousness. And you know who Paul was cheering for in that war? Paul was cheering for the righteousness. Can anybody relate to that? You feel inside yourself this this battle between the the newborn, the reborn, the regenerated spirit, and the old flesh. And you see the battle, and sometimes you see the flesh win, and sometimes you you see the spirit win. And as an outside observer, so to speak, you just root for the spirit and you desire to be free from sin. And as you desire to be free from sin and as you have come to Christ in asking for that forgiveness, you are not guilty. It's not that you have never been guilty. It's that as Christ removes sin and guilt, God sees us as not being guilty. And why is that? Well, it's because the Lord has taken away our guilt. And how has He done so? He's done so by Christ. And that's how we should aspire to feel. We should aspire to see ourselves as not guilty because that is how God sees us and how He sees us in Christ. We should know that we are forgiven. Not just because it makes us feel good, but we should know that we are forgiven because we are forgiven. And that's what we need. We need forgiveness. We need to be forgiven. Jesus, in, in, this, uh, in this Lord's Prayer, chooses to use the illustration of debts. And a debt is something that we incur, that we accrue. And we accrue debt, we build up our debt with the Lord through sin. And every time we do something that we shouldn't do, or don't do something that we should do, we increase this debt that we have with God. I I remember on the north side of the city, on the interstate somewhere near Wisconsin, there used to be, or perhaps there still is, a billboard. And the billboard was an electronic billboard, and it kept track in the moment, to the moment, the exact amount of debt the United States Treasury had. You know, the ironic thing about the debt the United States Treasury has is that it always went up so it is with our sin. The debt that we incur because of sin always goes up and never down. And the reason for that is because God has a perfect standard, and you cannot improve upon perfection. As we come to God in righteousness of any form, all we can say is, I have merely done my duty. But when we fall below that standard, then we incur a debt of righteousness to the Lord. You can't gain credit with God. You can't go above and beyond with God. And Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 18 that that speaks about an unpayable debt. And the parable goes like this, at least in part. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As as, As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times but seventy seven times Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants When he began to settle one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents And since he could not pay his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and that all he and all that he had and payment to be made So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This is an unpayable debt. Ten thousand talents, a talent was equivalent to about a year's wage for average Joe Israelite. And so even if this servant had lived for a thousand years, he could not have hoped to pay off this debt. That's the absurdity of what the guy says. I will pay you. You cannot pay him. There is no way that you can pay him. This is an empty promise. If, he had, if his life had depended upon paying, he would never have made it. And what does the master do but in pity? He forgives him all of his debt. We have, an unpayable, we have an unpayable debt. That's what the, the psalmist says as well in Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The answer to that question is no one. If God was to keep track of every sin, no one could stand. Because just one is enough to bring condemnation. And of course, we have done far more than one, far, far more than one. And as we perceive to have this unpayable debt, there should probably sink in for us a sense of despair, because if we, like this servant, could never hope to pay it off, and we recognize that we have this debt which is paid not to a man, but to the Holy One, And a debt payable to the Holy One, a debt of righteousness payable to the Holy One, means that we will suffer His justice against our unrighteousness. And this leads us, perhaps, and in some sense, rightfully, to a place of hopelessness. It drives us to the end of ourselves. Perhaps brings us to a place of despair. But that's not where the Scripture leaves us. The Scripture brings us to the point where we despair of ourselves, but it never leaves us at that point. And the Scripture has always given hope. Even in the Old Testament, when we didn't know how, when we didn't know when, or exactly the way it was going to happen, yet the Lord always left hope that some way, somehow there was going to be forgiveness. And you see this already in the very beginning. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, the Lord could have just squashed them and started all over. Or maybe not start all over at all. But that's not what He does. He closed them to, to, sh- to save them from their shame. And He gives them a promise that one day the devil will be crushed and you move forward and noah instead of being destroyed with everybody else noah receives the ark Abraham is justified by faith Moses has the, has the blood atonement and the sacrifices to remove sin. David even has his sin forgiven. And as you come to the cross of Jesus Christ, you see how it is that God's people can be forgiven. How it is that this unpayable debt can be paid. It's not paid by us. It's paid by the righteous one. It's paid by Christ. This is what Paul says. He says, he who knew no sin, that is Christ, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the transaction that takes place? The debt that we owe is placed on Christ. And the righteousness which He has is given to us. That He pays our debt. He stands in our stead. And as He pays our debt, there is nothing more to pay. And we are righteous in His sight. There are very few people in all of human history who have sinned more grievously than David did. David was both an adulterer and then he was a murderer. And you might say, well, there are people who killed more people than David and there are people who committed more adultery than David and you will most certainly be right, but very few of those people did so after having received more from the Lord than David did. And the Scripture has said, to whom much is given, much will be expected. And David took an awful lot from the Lord. The Lord took David from being a, a youngest son he took him from being a shepherd in the field to making him the king over all of his people. And not only that, but he gave him victory over all of his enemies. He, he, took, the, he took David and he slayed Goliath. He, he did all these things, but if that wasn't enough, if being king over the people of God wasn't enough, then he gave him a promise that from his line would come a king that even the great King David would call Lord. A king who would sit on his throne forever. And what does David do? But he takes all of that and he throws it back in God's face. All the wealth, all the riches, all the blessing bring him to a point of pride where he says, as we heard from the proverb last week, who is the Lord? And in saying who is the Lord, he commits this terrible, terrible sin. But just as there have been very few who have ever sinned more grievously than David, so there are very few who have repented as sincerely as David did. And David writes this psalm in the wake of this, his greatest sin. He writes his psalm in Psalm 51, verses 1 to 10. And he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Anybody can relate. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. That's a really long, sincere way of saying forgive me my debts. Do you hear all the language he uses? Cleanse me and wash me and, pur- and purge me and blot out all of my iniquities. Hide your face from my sins. He, he wants to have his sin forgotten, but that isn't all. But he-, he prays at the very end, create in me a clean heart. Bring me back to a place of righteousness as if I had never sinned. And God says, your sins are forgiven. If even David can be forgiven when he asks for his debts to be forgiven, then which of us could not be forgiven as well? That's the good news. When Jesus tells us to pray, Forgive us our debts. It's because they will be forgiven when we ask. That when we as sons and daughters of God come before Him and say, Father, forgive me. The answer that He gives, the answer that He gives is, My son, my daughter, I will forgive you gladly. God delights to forgive the sin of His children. A lot of us harbor that guilt. We harbor that guilt, but we shouldn't. We should see ourselves as God sees us. We should see ourselves as the children that He loves. And the children that He loves so much that He would pin and nail His Son to a cross that He might forgive us. If having received that forgiveness, we don't really believe it, then what hope can there be for us? If we have received such a rich blessing from God, but we we refuse to really receive it, if we say that we have been forgiven, but we do not confess in our hearts that we have been forgiven, then we are depriving ourselves, we are robbing ourselves of an infinitely wonderful blessing. That when we say, forgive us our debts, and when we mean it from the depths of our hearts. Indeed, our debts are forgiven. This is one of the most glorious themes of Scripture that winds itself all the way through from front to back. Just hear what we read again from a number of places in the New Testament. John says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Paul said again, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And the author of Hebrews says this, this is such glorious good news, but as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And then in Ephesians 1, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. If we have an understanding of God's holiness. And if we have an understanding of our own sin, we may come to the point we say, how can I dare to ask forgiveness of Him? But the answer to that is very simple. Because His Son told us to. And if Jesus tells us to pray something, then we have every reason to pray it, and every reason to expect that when we pray it, God answers it that we come to God with our guilt and we leave with no guilt. Remember the song that we sing? It's just like that. Jesus paid it all. There is nothing left to pay. The full debt, all 10,000 talents, has been forgiven. And so take comfort. It has been forgiven. But that's not the end of what we are told to pray. I think there's a little bit of a a abiding qualifier or condition on the end of this. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That might put a little bit of a gulp in us. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus puts a condition on this prayer that we must also be willing to to forgive if we are going to ask for forgiveness. The parable we started from Matthew 18 now continues later in Matthew 18, starting in verse 28. It says, But when that servant, that same servant, the one who was forgiven the 10,000 talents, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And here's the punchline. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The debt is very small, a hundred denarii. that's a, about a third of a year's work. Compared to, compared to 10,000 talents, it's nothing. It's not even a drop in the bucket compared to 10,000 talents. You can pay back 100 denarii. You cannot pay back 10,000 talents. And even still, this guy goes out and actually begins to choke his fellow servant over 100 denarii. You just think, what a worthless, wretched, no good scumbag of a man. And Jesus says, so it is with you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. There is no room for merciless people in the family of God. And there is no room for merciless people in the kingdom of God. God does not hear our prayers for mercy if we are not willing to offer the same to others. But if we are ourselves merciless, the Lord's ears are stopped against us. John Calvin said it like this, No one may presume to approach God and ask forgiveness who is not pure and free from all resentment. It is incumbent upon us to bear the family resemblance as much as possible. Our Father is merciful And we as His children should bear the family trait of mercy. Now, forgiving sin can be hard. There's no doubt about that. Forgiving others when they hurt us, when they sin against us, when they slander us, or however it may be, forgiving others is hard, but we can be assured of this. We will never forgive someone else more than we have already been forgiven. And as we have already received mercy ourselves to an infinite degree, we should be willing to offer mercy, however much is necessary, to others as well. It's not a difficult teaching. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to read this petition in the Lord's Prayer and understand what it's saying. It's not not a difficult thing, but it is. It is essential. We see this other places in the scripture as well. Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4 Be kind to one another and tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In Colossians 3, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love. Again, it's not profound. It's not difficult to understand. But it can be extremely difficult to do. But even still, Jesus is the one who said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We want to receive mercy, don't we? We want to be like Christian who ascends the hill to the base of the cross and receives the mercy of the sin and the guilt pouring away. We want to receive the mercy of being able to come before God as guiltless, we want to receive the mercy of having been taken out of the city of destruction and delivered into the eternal city of God. We, we want that mercy. And if we desire to have that mercy, then we ourselves must be merciful. Mercy is not optional for the Christian. It is essential. It is part of what it means to be a Christian. We are defined by the mercy, the forgiveness that God has given us. And so others must see us as being defined by our willingness to give forgiveness and mercy to others. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. I want to end with just one stanza of a poem written by J.I. Packer. He said this, In blazing light your cross reveals the truth we dimly knew. How small the debts men owe to us, how great our debt to you. Amen. Let's pray. It's true, Lord. We owe you a great debt. And we even pray that you would help us to see the great debt which we have owed. And We desire to see it, not that we can come to a point of despair. We want to see the greatness of our debt so that we can see more clearly the great power of Christ to forgive. We want to see just how much you have forgiven so that we can be compelled to offer mercy ourselves. And we pray for ourselves we ask that when we are guiltless in Your sight, that we would feel forgiven. That we would not feel one way while standing a different way before You. But as You count us to be, to be forgiven, to be pure, so we ask that You would help us to feel pure. We pray as well for those of us who are guilty, who harbor sin, who love the sin, who live in the sin, we pray that you would encourage us to come present our full selves to Christ for forgiveness. To be crucified, as the Apostle says, with Christ. And we pray that you would give us a great rejoicing. Lord, place joy in our hearts and our souls. Place joy in our hearts and all you have done for us. As you have forgiven us, Lord, give us the joy of our salvation. And as we, as we observe the battle between the flesh and the Spirit within us, and as we see Your Spirit beating back our flesh, as we see righteousness standing where once sin stood, we pray that You would give us the joy of seeing our sanctification progress and seeing how it is that we are growing ourselves in grace and mercy And as Satan assails us with guilt, and as he stands ever ready to accuse us, help us to continue to look to Christ who stands in our defense, silencing the mouth of Satan against the elect before he can even speak a word. Give us relief. Give our souls relief from his attacks. God, some of us have been cursed or have cursed, our, cursed ourselves with very long memories. That we have a tendency to hold petty grudges and to remember grievances. Whereas we should be quick to forgive, we are extremely slow to forgive. We harden our hearts against others instead of praying for them. And so we pray you would soften our hearts, give us the grace of short memories, and make us merciful. Lord, we want to receive mercy. We want to bear the family resemblance. And so as we desire for those things, we ask that you would work, that you would work the gracious work of your spirit in our hearts so that we may very simply do unto others as we would have them do to us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ who has himself forgiven us all of our debts. We pray in his name. Amen.